Hello, you're listening to Big Nerdy Questions. Thank you for tuning in. A few things before we get into the episode proper. Uh, first, our friends over at Geek History Lesson are currently running a Patreon, and we really want you to check it out. Uh, please Google Geek History Lesson. Uh, find their website, and the link for the Patreon is there. We will be doing a crossover event with Geek History Lesson in a couple of weeks. Why is there a delay, you ask? Well, this is the last episode of Season 1 of Big Nerdy Questions. We are going to take a few weeks off uh, to recharge the geek batteries. And and in the meantime, check out our Twitter feed. We'll still be active there. Uh, And also look for every Thursday, instead of new episodes, we will post one of our favorites uh, from the first season. When we come back, we have some amazing topics lined up for you. Uh, so we'll look forward to that and more on Season 2 of Big Nerdy Questions. And now, on with the show. questions tonight you will learn about the history of some of our favorite characters and why they are so great all great stories have an origin and it's about time that bnq tackled those topics tonight we here at big nerdy questions will answer which hero has the best origins and joining me on our panel to decide these fates we have ed one is all all is one we have Matt. Say what? And we have Colleen. May the seven pillars of Gulu be with you at all times. And uh, Colleen is, is want to say that even bad stories have origins. Uh, so it's not just the good ones, but we are looking only at the good ones here tonight. Uh, so what we will do is all of us will introduce certain characters and talk about their origins. But first, Matt, I believe we have a sponsor. That's right, Josh. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Tragic Origin Stories. Tragic origin stories. Just subtract parrots. <laughs> well done, sir. Uh, I hate to parrot along. And as, as, of course, we have our real sponsor for this season, uh, Dragon Fruit. If you are looking for that special someone to start the origins of your romance, check out Dragonfruit, uh, dragonfruitapp.com, uh, the dating app made by geeks for geeks. They can't even take your money at dragonfruitapp.com. We have a big nerdy recommendation tonight. Ed, I believe you would like to provide us with the recommendation, and it's a cinematic one. It is, uh, and this will be a little bit off the beaten path for uh, probably many of our listeners. The name of the film is called Long Way North. It is a collaboration between French and Dutch filmmakers. It is an animated feature, which I would call something similar to an anime. The director is Remy Chayet, and... uh, it's a story that takes place in the 1890s in Russia, and it's about uh, a Russian aristocratic daughter who uh, goes on this adventure to try to uh, chart the course that her grandfather did on his trek to the North Pole because his ship went missing two years previously. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the story because it really needs to be experienced. The the gra- the uh, the animation is beautiful. The storytelling is very well done. And it, it kind of has, you know, its somber moments throughout, and I would really highly recommend this to anybody that loves a uh, good animated feature. Thanks, Ed. Uh, as we well know, you are our 
anime expert amongst the group. Uh, well, all of us like anime, but you truly are an anime aficionado. Uh, so to compare it to the best anime, even though it's European, I am so excited to see this film. So thank you for your recommendation. No problem. And now it is time to enter into origin stories. So before all of us jump into characters, uh, I want to open up to the group first and ask, what do you guys think makes a good origin story? Uh, when you think of an origin, do you think it has to be what? Uh, Ed, I think you might want to say something. Uh, well, uh, it could be any number of things, really, because you get ones like Batman who have a traumatic childhood, and you have characters like, you know, Hal Jordan who came up a regular guy and, you know, not a traumatic past, just through happenstance as an adult. I think there's any myriad of ways that a hero's origin can come about in any stage of life, really, because, I mean, I've read novels where... Uh, Stephen King novels, really, where the, the main character is in his 70s, not a heroic bone in his body before that. I'm thinking of um, it, the, the book Insomnia, and through a series of events, he becomes a hero late in the twilight of his life. So I actually will be proposing an origin story later on in this episode where an adult uh, goes through a major transformation. A little bit of a teaser there. Uh, huh. Colleen, I think you mentioned before your two Ps for origins uh, point and progression. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's got there's got to be a, a like a point to even the, even having like an origin story. I mean, to me, the the idea of an origin uh, suggests some type of change or growth. Uh, hence, the progression going from like a starting point to maybe within the arc of the story uh, an end point, even though they may not be like the final end point. They may be later growth. But I mean, I've just I've seen several you know films or read several books where there as far as a the hero or characters don't seem to progress very much. They just stay within a certain archetype. And uh, for me, personally, like um, plot development and uh, character growth is key to um, maintain my interest. So there's got to be there's got to be a main point. Like, why do we care? And and I personally want to see some kind of growth or change um, going on in in the, with the character. Yeah, I I agree. Point and progression are the best rubric to think of for evaluating an origin story. And as Ed mentioned, it, the origin can either be caused by events. It can also be happenstance, but there has to have a meaning to it. If So if there's an event that happens that's beyond our character's control, the way that the character reacts to it changes as a result of it. That can still justify an otherwise random event creating a hero. It's not right. okay to have like, hey, I was outside in this wonderful rain and all of a sudden, I became Radioactive Man, and now I'm at home, and I can heat my burrito without going to the microwave. Jiminy Jillikers, Radioactive Man. Uh, that's not really... doesn't work. I mean, and other people, please feel free to disagree with me. I'm going to give an example really quick. Uh, the, the first movie, <clears throat> I really didn't see much of a point to the entire film because I felt that the status quo never really changed as far as Thor's character. I mean, he starts out the movie being very brash and everybody loves him, and he ends the movie being slightly less brash, but everybody still loves him. I mean, I, I just didn't understand why I spent two hours watching that movie. Although I do like the movie. As far as the character plot and development goes, I just felt it was a little thin. Hawkeye was in it. That was the reason for the movie. Come on. (laughs) The whole point was to introduce Jeremy Renner. Yes. (laughs) 
We figured them out. I actually like the first Thor movie and the second one. They're not the best, but I like them okay. I, I like the film, but I agree with Colleen's point. The status quo isn't changed all that much, uh, which is odd considering you have Kenneth Branagh directing and the whole thing with Shakespeare and characters. Uh, well, but, I mean, yeah, and that's, I mean, even with even with Loki's character, I mean, you, you start the movie and people always like are they don't trust him. They're very suspicious. And then he goes off and does something evil, and it's like. Oh, see, he was evil to begin with, so of course he was evil. You know, just like, oh, Thor, so great, so of course he's going to do great things. I just, I didn't feel as an example as, as that there really wasn't much growth as far as the characters um, were concerned in that movie. But I anyway. can definitely see that. Uh, Matt, do you have anything to add to what you look for in an origin before we press on to characters? Absolutely. So the, the things I look for in an origin story is, uh, <coughs> first of all, has this origin story been beaten to death? Because, as was alluded to in our sponsorship, there are dead parents everywhere in her <laughs> stories. And it, it's actually, it is actually to the point where it has a category of tropes on uh, tvtropes.com at, for origin stories. And one of the main ones is death by origin story, and it's almost <laughs> exclusively limited to the parents or legal and or legal guardians of said hero. <laughs> Which should tell you something right there. Superman's parents. Oh, sorry, the origin story killed you. The, the planet exploded. Why? To make your origin more tragic. Batman, <laughs> your parents are dead. But why? Oh, to give you, you know, a more tragic background. Iron Man, his parents were killed by Hydra slash S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, it, it, it doesn't need to be complex. It just needs to be something that hasn't been beaten to death, and it needs to, at least to an extent, be believable. Yeah, you know, Matt makes a really good point. You don't even have to be, you don't even have to be human or alien. You can be an animal. I mean, you know, as far as like, you know, being beat over the, uh, you know, the head with losing parents. I mean, look what happened to Simba and his origin story. Well, Hakuna Matata is the motto for all thinking lines. Uh, so, I, yeah, I love all your guys' points on what needs to be in an origin story, and I think it's time we turn to the specific characters. And for our Intrepid 8, I believe that Ed has our first nominee. Uh, yes, I'm going with <clears throat> Shigeo Kageyama, uh, better known as Mob, in the show Mob Psycho 100. It's an anime, uh, one season out so far, 12 episodes. It's only in Japanese. Uh, <clears throat> Mob, uh, what's cool about him as a hero, and for his origin story, at a young age, he... Uh, started developing really powerful psychic powers. Uh, and at a young age, when he was, you know, grade school level, he uh, had an incident where there were some bullies going after his little brother, and he lost control of his powers uh, and injured a couple of the kids. He didn't kill anybody, but he injured them. But he's such an introverted person, and he doesn't like to hurt people, so he puts these mental blocks up to prohibit his emotions from running wild and uh, subsequently stemming back the brunt of his power. This story must have uh, really made an impression on you because there's only one season so far. Why do you think this character is so meaningful so quickly? The way that the character is written, uh, he is just such a introverted person. And, and one of the really cool things about his character is... He has these fantastic abilities. He, he can use telekinesis. He can sense psychic energy. He can do all of these fantastic things. But 
in his everyday life, what he wants is to be normal. He wants to be accepted. He wants to make friends. He wants to get a girlfriend. And instead of just using his psychic powers to either make what he wants reality or bend others to his will, he tries to better himself in you know emotional or physical ways. Instead of just using his psychic powers for uh, you know any heavy lifting he would do in his regular life, he joins the fitness club, which he's completely garbage at. And he's there's always comedy skits where he's trying to uh, jog with the fitness club and he can't do it very well. But he comes into battles with other espers and psychics. And all throughout these battles, his primary worry is not hurting the other opponent. Regardless of the danger to himself, he always keeps the limiters on himself until the trigger's pushed. And the reason the show is called Mob Psycho 100 is if he gets pushed to a certain level, the the inhibitors just kind of snap and he loses control. But he's always constantly trying to keep himself in check. He cares, you know, more about not hurting people than about saving his own skin. And it, it just left such an impression for me. It was in such a short time, 12 episodes. That I mean, that's a short time at 22 minutes an episode to get, you know, this feeling and this power from and this emotion from one character. And he is just the most selfless uh, one of the most selfless characters I've ever seen in an anime. You know, it kind of reminds me, I haven't seen the show, uh, but from what you're saying, it reminds me a bit of like Superman and his character, where he has all of this strength and all this power, but he does not like using it aggressively against other people. Even, even his enemy, I mean, like how many times has he, you know, fought Lex Luthor, but he's never killed him. I mean, he could very easily pound Luthor. Oh, yes. Never, never has. Well, and... And that's that's the thing that really sells me as a hero. He didn't have the stereotypical, like Matt was saying, oh, his parents died and he decided to be the avenging angel or anything like that. It was, you know, he he did have an event where he lost control of this immense power he had. And he he, he shut himself up. He walled himself off so much uh, emotionally that he's just a very socially awkward kid but at the same time, he's really good-natured and has a really great heart. And even while he's fighting these incredible people that you know are, are selfish and and murderous and all this stuff, his primary concern is I don't want to kill anybody. So he kind of represents the good in all of us, or what we can aspire to become. Yes, I'll actually have a nominee in a few minutes that has a lot of echoes of that. I, I think. Uh, so, Ed, thank you for that first nominee. We will add him to the list. Mob, you are our first nominee. And now I turn it over to, over to Colleen. Uh, I believe that you said that your first nominee is a cinematic one. Well, they're, they're, they're both cinematic. I'm going to go um, out of order a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with my second pick. Um, and, and I'm going with Jen Erso from Rogue One. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen Rogue One, First of all, you really need to. Second of all, spoiler alert. <laughs> warning, warning. <laughs> so, um, okay, so Jen is interesting. She, I, I view her story as one as kind of like a tragic form of heroism. Um, if, you, if you think about it, her, her choices are basically taken from her almost since she, uh, her birth. Uh, she's on the run pretty much her entire life. Um, and then when she finally is able to face her past and then takes on the mantle of destroying her father's work, which, of course, you know, is the plan to the Death Star, she succeeds, but she does so at the price of her own life. And so I was just kind of fascinated by this. And just for those of you who haven't seen the uh, movie Rogue One yet, I'll just briefly go over her, you know, origin story. So essentially... 
Um, Jin was born in prison, um, and this was she was born at the very end of the Clone Wars, and she was born in prison on a separatist uh, planet. Then um, her father was recruited by the Empire to start uh, doing some research into uh, creating, you know, a like a. What was it? Like, anyway, I was using the kyber crystals, you know, uh, which are used to power the lightsabers, but instead of powering lightsabers, it was, you know, for a larger project, which eventually turned into uh, the super laser uh, in the Death Star. Uh, but so, so then she lived when she was young on Coruscant, um, but, you know, under close watch by the Imperials. Then her parents left the, uh, the Empire and went into hiding, um, but they were found. Um, her uh, mother was killed, and she was um, raised by, um, oh, what was his name that she was raised by? Saw Guerrera. Thank you, Saw Guerrera. Um, and they were essentially anarchists, and, but then she was abandoned by them. Um, she was on her own since she was two years old. Uh, she used several different aliases to hide her identity because the Empire and the Alliance were both looking for her. Um, but she wanted nothing to do with her past. She didn't agree with her father's work. She thought that he was voluntarily working for the Empire. She just wanted nothing to do with that. Even to the point when the Alliance um, finally got a hold of her, she refused to help them. Um, then finally, after she, she met her father, and then he dies in her arms, and that totally, by the way, reminded me of, you know, uh, Qui-Gon dying, mm -hmm. you know, in Obi-Wan's arms. Mm -hmm. uh, she, her father's, like, last wish is that she uh, destroy his work. Even though he was working to, you know, help create the Death Star, he built a flaw into it, which is, you know, the one that Luke uses to destroy it, but um, in order to do so, she has to go find the plans and get them in the hands of the Alliance. Uh, but the Alliance uh, leadership decides, no, they don't want anything to, they don't want to risk the, uh, the you know, the Empire's wrath or uh, their resources to try to steal the plans, and so Jin decides, screw you, I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, she is able to get the plans, obviously, and sends them to the Alliance, but in the end, she and the rest on her team dies. Um, so, that's her, her basic, you know, origin story, but I found it very fascinating because if you look at it, um, it's like every time she, she wants freedom, she wants, you know, just to, to completely, you know, break away from her past and do her own thing, but she is unable to do so. Every time she tries to fight, um, you know, or refuse to have to, you know, face like her, 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 um, like what her father's work, you know, with the Death Star. I mean, she agrees that every time she tries to run away from that, um, something bad happens. Um, if you think about it, so there's always some type of chaos. So whenever she runs, tries to run away from like her destiny, she has that chaos happens and she ends up being in somebody else's control. Um, but then when she finally faces and accepts her destiny, things actually go remarkably well. I mean, she manages to steal an Alliance ship, but no one like shoots her ship down, you know, or it's not like the Alliance is like, Oh, let's, you know, use a tractor beam and pull it back down and throw them all in the brig. Uh, so she and the rest of the crew managed to get through the Imperial defenses without being detected. Um, and she manages to send off the Death Star plans while everything around her is, like, literally going to hell. So even though she wants to be completely free of her family's burden, which is, you know, the Death Star, it's only when she accepts that burden she as her own that she finally becomes able to be free and is able to make her own choices. So I found that very interesting and very deep for uh, a character you're only going to see one time. 
Yeah, I really like the way they constructed Jen's personality, and in a way, even though I expected her ending to happen the way it did, I am saddened by the fact that we will likely not see that character again because she was so well constructed. Uh, and, and honestly, I got, and we're going to do a Rogue One special down the line, so folks, if you want more discussion like this, just wait a little while. Uh, but Rogue One gave me a feeling of sort of like Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai, of bringing a ragtag uh-huh. mm-hmm. group together for this uh, suicide mission. Uh, and in a way, I, Jen is the, the she, not in a way, she is the marquee character of the bunch, the one who's fulfilling her destiny, but in a way that is beyond expectation. So I really do, and I liked all the characters in Rogue One, but especially Jen, so inspired choice. I- I view that it's almost like for her, everything she does, like I said, she just, she fights so much against, she doesn't want to have, to, she hides from the Empire, she hides from the anarchists who raised her, she even hides from her own father, she doesn't want to face reality, um, but it, it just reminded me of what Obi-Wan said, you know, you cannot escape your destiny. You know, uh, I agree with what you're saying. <clears throat> I would also submit that uh, her father, Galen, was just as important and just as much a hero. And uh, I would base that off of the novel that comes right before the movie, probably more than the movie itself, because uh, Mads Mikkelsen was not in that movie very much. No. But you could tell it's an interesting choice for a hero to say, instead of fighting it outright, he's going to collaborate and become a mole. It's a more... It's a different choice than what we typically see, uh, but I agree with you that Galen did probably the best that he thought he could do given the circus he found himself in. Well, and they also fixed a 30-plus-year-old plot hole with the exhaust port. <laughs> yes, which Matt and I actually covered a few months ago on our best uh, Deus Ex Machina in, in nerd uh, things, which scheme should have really worked. We both talked about the Death Star in that one, so retroactively, that entry can be removed from that episode. So, well a done, pre- Rogue One. A, pre- a prequel that enhanced an original film? Holy oh, yeah, yeah, so I view Jin as like a highly reluctant hero, also tied in, like I said, it's more like a, a tragic hero. You always want your hero to triumph, um, and, and, and she does, but not for very long, because in the end, uh, she does die. Well, she was such a, you know, a a stubborn and prideful character that even at the end, I think she got her victory and she got to bask in it for at least those brief few moments. So she knew she had won. She was literally basking in the glow. Yeah, she was literally, yeah, she was literally (laughs) basking in it, yeah. Well, you know, one thing I would like to say, though, is that uh, I'm happy for DC and I'm going to let him finish. But Star Wars had the best Suicide Squad of all time. time. (laughs) (laughs) Jyn Erso is better than Harley Quinn. I said it. Well, that Harley Quinn, yeah. Uh, Yeah, well, that Harley Quinn, yeah. Hey, Mr. J. Uh, Okay, we we need to have an episode about the DC Cinematic Universe, because I'll be the only one that defends it, but I will. I'll defend it. I'll defend it circa 1990, uh, but that's just... I'll defend it right up until the beginning of Superman 3. Okay, look, I'm probably the only one on the planet who loves Superman Returns. Yeah, you probably are. (laughs) Again, 
again, but think about, like I told you, for me, uh, you know, character growth is a really big deal for me. And so for that movie, it hit on the mark. So that's mm-hmm. why I really like I- it. I will say one positive thing about that film, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. He is, I think he's my favorite Luther of the bus. Also, <coughs> Kryptonite <I>, Shank. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would think, I think I like um, Rosenbaum from Smallville better. Oh, he's a good candidate. He is good. I mean, Gene Hackman is the definitive, I guess, but he oh, he overacted the role. I think he did exactly what the director told him. Agreed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Superman is a character. Superman is a character, and uh, the Jedi's are characters that have great power and therefore have great responsibility. I wonder who else has that <laughs> yeah, uh, character. Oh, yeah, my, next, my first nominee... Uh, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, Peter Parker. Now, uh, I know what you're thinking out there. You're thinking, but Josh, you just said a few minutes ago that there are tropes you want to avoid in origin stories. Exactly. But I submit to you that some origin stories created the trope in the first place. Or are so early enough and so iconic enough, you can give it a pass. And Spider-Man definitely fits the bill for this one. Uh, and also, the dead parents in Spider-Man are not the catalyst for him becoming Spider-Man. They were dead long before he is bitten by a radioactive spider. Um, <laughs> and so he has his aunt and uncle, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but as you well know, if you've read the Spider-Man comics or seen the first Spider-Man film, Featuring Tobey Maguire, that is probably so far at least the most uh, the most loyal to the original comic origins. I know the Amazing Spider-Man origin was reflected in the Andrew Garfield film, but I'm referring to the original origin story uh, because I'm a purist like that. Uh, Peter Parker, 15-year-old boy, uh, is bitten by a radioactive spider and starts to develop superpowers. Uh, he lives with his aunt May and Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben was also a rice magnet. Uh, he had a, a big fortune in that, but they don't really cover that that much, unfortunately. Uh, but he starts developing the ability to crawl on things, walk on walls, shoot webs. Uh, of course, the web slinging is in the or- original is enhanced by machines that he builds, which I'm sh- the Marvel Cinematic Universe is showing that side, which I very much appreciate. But Organic shooters or constructed shooters, nevertheless, he has the ability. Uh, so he starts to realize that he has to, he wants to make a difference in the world, so he goes and tries to fight some petty crimes. And then he fights a wrestler. Uh, in the comics, it's a no name. In the film, it's Bonesaw, played by Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah! Uh, Bonesaw is ready. Snap into a Peter Parker. Oh, yeah! Uh, and he defeats them in the best steel cage match ever portrayed on film. <laughs> Beyond Thunderdome is a close second. Uh, and then, uh, while getting his money for the wrestling match, he, uh, runs into a robber. He lets him go. The robber eventually kills Uncle Ben, who was waiting to pick up Peter. And at that point, Peter realizes that a quote his uncle had told him months earlier now must be his life motto. With great power comes great responsibility. And scene. That's the origin of Spider-Man. And, of course, you get all the things, villains and uh, Mary Jane and uh, Gwen Stacy down the line. But his origin story is about 
you know, he has these powers, but his real origin is realizing that he has to use these powers responsibly. I would argue that Spider-Man is not born when he's bitten by a spider. Spider-Man is born when Uncle Ben dies. And it is been overused a lot since. Clearly it has a lot of similarities to Batman's origin story, although Spider-Man is significantly older when uh, he loses his parental figure in a tragic way. But it is one of the definitive origin stories of comics. I'd argue it's one of the definitive origin stories of all of nerd culture. Uh, so I felt it would be remiss to not introduce uh, Peter Parker in the discussion. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on Spidey? Well, I think it's interesting um, that you you chose that moment, you know, uh, when, when his uncle dies, to say that's when he becomes Spider-Man. Um, there's always some kind of defining moment or a catalyst, something, some kind of event or decision that happens that, you know, takes the the hero from who they were to on that path to who they will become, which is that hero. So I think that's a very um, nuanced approach, saying, oh, just because he got bit by Surrender Spider doesn't make him a hero. It's it's the choices that he makes, you know, with with that power um, that he has that makes him that hero, that makes him heroic. Exactly. And I, I do think that the first Spider-Man films, one and two, with Tobey Maguire, do a really good job of showing that, that the, the choices on the screen, particularly in the sense that he... Uh, doesn't want to entangle Mary Jane into anything he has to do because he knows that it could cause her pain. That's that's nothing to do with him being bitten by a spider and everything to do with him trying to live out his uncle's creed. Yeah, and see, and again, I mean, I really enjoyed the first two Spider-Mans with Tobey Maguire because, again, this is big with me, and you'll hear me say it again and again, because of the character development, there was depth there. It's not just like, hey, I'm this awesome person with all these powers, and I have a really cool-looking suit, and I do awesome things. Everybody loves me. There was some depth to the character to show you that, you know, it's not when you, when you you know, these people are human, and they struggle just like the rest of us, except that struggle can become greater when, um, you know, you've got these powers and other people, crazy people in, you know, in other costumes trying to, you know, make everything go to hell. Exactly. And I do want to point out that the Andrew Garfield, well, not his his acting, but the depiction of the Spider-Man origin story in The Amazing Spider-Man is still a good one. I just prefer the original origin story that was the original in the comics back when Spider-Man first came out. Um, but I think that Spider-Man, his origin story is so iconic, and that's the reason why you know the Marvel Cinematic Powers That Be have said they're not going to do an origin story for Andrew, or for, not Andrew, for um, Tom Holland. For Tom Holland's <clears throat> character. The first Spider-Man film is just going to be Spider-Man. They showed a few origin scenes in Captain America Civil War, but not really. I mean, Spider-Man, yeah, he's been given some equipment from Iron Man, but his character's already established, because you don't right, need to exactly. establish it again. The, the, the origin story is so iconic for a reason, there's no need to rehash it. Looking at you, Batman. Or, yeah, I mean, exactly. We, we get it. We know we don't really need to see another movie telling us the same thing that we saw back in 1999. Or we can see on Netflix. If we really <clears throat> yeah. yeah, you can watch the animated series, which was phenomenal. But anyway. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so that's my first pick, and it was Marvel Us. Ha. Uh, uh. Uh, but I believe, Matt, you might have something else that's equally marvelous, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I I am 
As we all know by this point, I'm kind of the Marvel Comics guy around here. Oh my and god, for just two seconds. So, that was a pun within a handoff there, Josh? Yes, it was. Oh my god. I don't know whether to be horrified or impressed. Both horrified. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep it within Marvel, and... Uh, Perhaps a bit less iconic, and really a character that gets maligned thanks to uh, some bad movie making looking at you, so... But this is a character that I grew up with. Really one of the first comic book characters for me, and that is none other than Norrin Rad. Now, a lot of you who are only familiar with Marvel through the... uh, through the films are probably thinking who to what to what? Yeah, and no, the answer to that what? is the Silver Surfer himself. Oh, I now, did not realize he had a name. Yes, the Silver Surfer's actual name is Norrin Rad. And because I used to read the Fantastic Four comics when I was little, and I somehow blanked that out. Right. Well, his first appearance was actually in, uh, I believe it was Fantastic Four forty eight back in nineteen sixty six, and. They didn't get into his backstory for a while, but once they actually got into his story, it was it was pretty unique, at least for the time, in that he was first introduced as the Herald of Galactus, who goes and finds planets for Galactus to consume to sustain himself. But nobody really knew the why, and they did that in the uh, in the Fantastic Four film with Rise of the Silver Surfer. Oh, he's just Galactus Cloud things. Body, man, I'm not going to get started on the Galactus Cloud today. We're not going there. So, first of all, he was an adult as Ordinary, and a lot of these comic heroes, it's some event in their childhood or their very young adulthood that is the catalyst for them becoming a hero. But not Norrin Rad. Norrin Rad was a grown-ass man. And he had a lover named Shalabal, and his parents were dead, not for tragic, but because they died of old age. I, this, this guy was roughly middle-aged when this happened, and the Herald of Galactus came to his planet, Zen La, and it's this utopian planet where there's no real conflict, and <coughs> basically everything is boring and the only way people pass the time is through sheer hedonism. Well, so Vegas. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what happens on Zen Law stays on Zen Law. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the Herald of Galactus comes, and in order to save Shalabal from being consumed with the planet, Norinrad agrees to become the new Herald of Galactus, and Zen Law will be left alone on the condition that in perpetuity he becomes the Silver Surfer as the Herald. And so he has to go planet to planet, finding places for Galactus to consume, (coughs) and he does so for many, many years, and eventually comes to Earth, which is when he's introduced in the Fantastic Four comics, and when he truly... And I consider him already the Silver Surfer and already the hero, because he is sacrificing the his entire future to protect his home planet. And he eventually turns on Galactus to protect the Earth and manages to break free from Galactus and retain the powers as the Silver where it then goes into the Silver Surfer. 
Or, do you think he saved his Silver Surfer powers in the cloud? I'm going to slap you. <laughs> <laughs> Galactus? Not a cloud. Clouds <laughs> can't wear big, tall, purple helmets. <laughs> I told you not to get started on Galactus. <laughs> no, so wait, seriously, it's, it's a good pick. Prince? Say that again? Said, so Galactus is Prince, big purple helmet? His hair is not nearly that fabulous. But see, when Galactus has purple rain, everyone dies because they're consumed. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's not rain. That is saliva falling on your planet. I just picture Galactus, like, out there in the world like a neon cat, like, ah, nom, 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 nom. Oh, I guarantee there's a gif of it somewhere. <laughs> and if not, listeners, you can make one. <laughs> if you want to make a Galactus ah, nom, nom gif. to make it. Silver Surfer seems like the quintessential hero who, you know, he is essentially blackmailed into servitude for an evil force to save his planet and then is finally able down the road, and I'm sorry I say down the road, but I don't know exactly how much time passed between him becoming the Herald and coming to Earth, eventually able to shackle or get get rid of the shackles of the Galactus, the most powerful being in existence, and gain his freedom and somehow preserve his home planet and another planet in the process. Oh my god! Loki totally needs to, like, text the Silver Surfer and be like, Dude, how did you do X, Y, and Z? Because I need some serious help in that same department. Uh, (laughs) Power Cosmic, that's how. What? (laughs) So, did they ever explain in the comics, Matt, why the Silver Surfer is a surfer? Like, I I, I hate to make a joke about it, but... Uh, Because it seems like that's an odd... Earth-specific thing for an, a herald from across the space and time. It's totally tubular, man. It actually uh, was explained because it was uh, it was Stanley, and I'm trying to remember the name of the artist who started Silver Surfer with them. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, Jack Kirby. So Jack Kirby was the original artist for Silver Surfer, and when Stan Lee wrote the original story, there wasn't supposed to be a surfboard. He was supposed to have some means of flying through space. Jack Kirby decided to make it a surfboard, took it to uh, Stan Lee. Stan Lee asked him about it, and his response was, I'm sick of drawing spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so I drew a space surfboard. Yeah. <laughs> so he wouldn't have to draw another spaceship. That's the whole reason it's a bore. That's There's amazing. That, that's just a cover story. He was a hippie, loved surfing. You know. <laughs> <coughs> that's what it was. He went to Stanley and was like, look, here's my idea. I'm not quite sure if I've got the entire surfboard like culture down pack, so I'm going to have to take at least three weeks vacation and, you know, do some, I mean, do three weeks of research in uh, Hawaii and California so I can really understand. Yeah. Well, that's why his first line when he meets Galactus is, Cool helmet, bro. <laughs> Tubular. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I was and totally like, going to Venus, but then I ate it in the Galactia and Met- Metroid belt, dude. God, okay, why does he talk like Polly Shore? Polly <laughs> Shore is the Silver Surfer coming this Mar- fall. Marvel, Look, don't make it happen. <laughs> and my mouth. And you interweave them. <laughs> it's the you know, leading I, tower of cheese. Uh. 
God. So Matt, the, like seriously, I, I like your pick that you uh, you picked a guy who, quite frankly, started out as a total okay. douchebag, but then um, ended up being like you know awesome. I, I like again character development in depth, really big with me. So I like that. I enjoy your pick. Yeah, redemption, and we we had a few weeks ago Rick on our Next Generation Star Trek special. His favorite two-parter was Redemption because of the story arc for Worf, his family being redeemed. Redemption is a universal story that we can all relate to in some way, shape, or form, and uh, The Silver Surfer is probably one of Marvel's best redemption stories, uh, well, especially I'm especially sure. given the high stakes. I don't yeah. know if you would necessarily label it as redemption, because when I think of redemption, I think of like... Kind of like an Anakin Skywalker thing, where you have somebody who was good and then fell and became, like, seriously evil and was evil and they did evil things because, ooh, I'm evil, right? You know, I stroke my cat and I have evil plans and that's what I do. Yeah. And then, <laughs> exactly. And then and then at some point you're like, yeah, this isn't working out for me. I think I'm going to be nice again. And yeah. so that's where they begin yeah. redeeming. But if you have a situation where somebody is forced into that situation to do bad things, to it, but they're constantly doing it to save others. Can you really say in the end when when their ultimate motive is exposed that they've been redeemed just because you thought they were evil and they turned out not to be when all along they were doing bad things, but they were doing it to for for and if you know for very personal or very good reasons, you know, in the largest. That's true. Of it's things. more complex than a simple redemption story. It's yeah, and I really think one of the biggest. Uh, injustices in Marvel is that there has been no really good exploration on on the screen, uh, be it on television, through live action or cartoons, or in uh, any of the Marvel films in any of the universes, not just MCU, of the Silver Surfer story, because it's this great rich story, and just nobody wants to touch it. You know, you could actually do a film, say it's a Marvel film, just don't say what it is, and the, the whole plot is this utopian planet is being threatened by an entity from afar, and someone in the culture has to rise up and save the planet, and you don't reveal until the very end of the film that it's this origin story of Silver Surfer. Because for most people who aren't familiar with it, they would have no clue until the very last scene what they're watching. You know, or you could always do a series from the Silver Surfer's kind of point of view. You know, instead of, like, on the outside observing what's going on, you know, as most, you know, of these movies are taken from that perspective, you know, we're, we're a third-party audience watching and observing what's going on. We don't necessarily see everything behind the scenes or completely understand the motivations behind what these characters do. You could do the opposite. So it's shown through the Silver Surfer's perspective. So you understand what he's doing. So as you go through it, uh, you see him more as a hero or as an ally versus if you were looking at it from the outside in where you would possibly be viewing him as a villain. Yeah, and I, I can also see some, some depth to a sequel where you have a character um, who is from one of the planets that Galactus has eaten where the Silver Surfer was the Herald who survived living yeah. somewhere else trying to get revenge on a Surfer who has since gotten his own freedom. And that would be a, a great complex story. Yeah, hashtag consequences. Well, it kind of reminds me of, uh, what's his name, the Black Panther, you know, in in uh, the Avengers. Yeah, you know, in Civil War, yeah. To, yeah, I mean, he was 
you know, trying to be a hero, but he was doing things for personal revenge. And in the end, if you do that, then are you really still a hero? Do you become just as bad as the thing you're seeking revenge against? Well, the villain in Civil War, and I'm blanking on his name, he was doing the same thing. His, he lost his home country in Zakovia and set the whole thing up for revenge. Zemo. Zemo, thank you. Uh, so, there you go. But he, he went too far, clearly. Uh, so, yeah, I think, what do you think, Matt? You think there's potential here for a, a big production series? What, what I would honestly love to see is to Eric and Julia to get their hands on it and just run with it. I Yes, I would love that. I, w- I would love to see them just, just run with it and see what they come up with. Because a- a- after, I still stand by... Uh, X-Men the Animated Series and Spider-Man the Animated Series as two of the best small screen portrayals of Marvel characters. They would be great showrunners and if you know if we don't want Eric and Julia Lee Wall by the way ran X-Men the Animated Series and they came on our show a few months ago listen to the interview if you haven't yet it's one of our best uh, things we've ever done we're really happy with it uh, yeah so I would awesome. love to see their series their take on Silver Surfer. It would give me the warm fuzzies the whole way through. And they did do a good job. I think we should do an honorable mention here for another Marvel character. They did a really great job with Wolverine um, and some of the other characters in the X-Men showing their backgrounds in the animated series. And I also think that Professor X and Magneto have the best hero-villain tandem origin story. Romance! Uh, uh, So... I think we'll get into villain origin stories in a later episode, but I think Magneto is up there and putting him together with Professor X. I love the bromance, but I love the way they work together and are, and are against each other. Great origin. Uh, so we'll do round two. And Ed, I believe you have another character to nominate. Okay, I believe Colleen's at least familiar with this one if she hasn't watched the entire series. <clears throat> My second choice is Edward Elric from the Full Metal Alchemist franchise at the anime. Uh, Colleen, you have seen that before, Yes. Yes, I have. Okay, well then you know where I'm going with this. Yes, All right. I- okay, the uh, character of Edward Elric. Uh, here we go with the uh, you know parents dying trope again, but just bear with me. It's good. Okay, uh, as a child, uh, very young, uh, Edward and his brother Alphonse, their father leaves for unspecified reasons and he doesn't come back. The mother takes ill and eventually dies. The boys are studying alchemy, which is kind of like a mixture of science and magic in that world. And uh, through the course of their young lives, they train uh, up in alchemy, learning as much as they can, as quickly as they can, because Edward has it in his mind that he can bring his mother back from the dead. And uh, within the confines of the show, that is the one unforgivable sin within the show. Uh, It is the one taboo that you're not supposed to do as an alchemist, and he knows that. So they come back and try together, him and his brother, to bring back their mother. Well, it goes horribly awry. He ends up losing his leg. His brother ends up losing his entire body, and he is uh, able to, in the heat of the moment, bind his brother's soul to a suit of armor Uh, so he can at least preserve that much of his life at the expense of his own arm. From there on, 
it becomes his life's mission to learn as much as he can about alchemy and coincidentally the philosopher's stone which is supposedly this mythical object and no not the one from harry potter this mythical object that will allow him to perform alchemy outside the rules of equivalent exchange which is their primary governing force in alchemy but he becomes a uh a member of the government, an alchemist for the state government, and the entire series is driven by his desire to get his brother's body back. That is their primary force. And it is just this amazing, fantastic story of determination and grit and, and heartfelt and sacrifice. And it is just, it, I mean, Colleen, chime in here. It is awesome. Everybody should watch it. It is full of depth and twists and turns, and it will blow your mind. And it's something we can all relate to. We, uh, I mean, at one point in our lives, we've all lost loved ones. And I know it's a trope. I know it's a trope. But his his mind as a young child was to help bring his mother back. And then they paid a tremendous price for it. Now mm. he's trying his damnedest to get his brother's body back. Because all it is is just, it's a literal empty suit of armor with a soul attached to it that can move around. You know, I should point out here, I think it's we need to make a, a clarification. Tropes clearly you know, can be overused, but if a trope is used correctly and is given depth and progression and has a point, there's not necessarily anything wrong with having a trope. Well, no, I mean, archi archetypes are how literature is built. Yeah, precisely. We're talking about origin stories. Origin stories are going to have, especially for heroes, are going to you're going to see you know those those same. Um, you know, the characteristics over and over again. You're always going to have, like, a point A. You have, like, usually your everyman, who then a catalyst, something happens, there's a catalyst that occurs, and then they, that person is launched on their path to become the hero. And that catalyst is usually something tragic. It's very rare for a hero to say, oh, I feel so good, I'm going to go do something heroic today. Uh, as a yes, brief... Yeah, As a brief yeah. aside, and, and I know you said you're going to have an honorable mention. I'm going to give you an honorable mention. This is an exact instance of what you just said. There's an anime called One Punch Man, which is from the uh, same director as Mob Psycho 100, my first recommendation for this. He literally, just as an adult, decides, I want to go be a hero for fun, and that's what he does. <laughs> I, kid, I kid you not, and it is fantastic. You know, nice. that kind of reminds me of the original, of the, the Disney movie, um, Hercules, where Hercules yes. is just like, oh, I'm just going to go perform all these heroic deeds, and then I'll be a hero, but then it finds out that being a true hero means something much more than just going out and saving well, people and getting trophies. He found out that he underwear. could go the distance. He could be on his way. Well, what is it, the lyrics in that song that say, a hero's strength is measured by his heart, and I think yes. you know, going back to Full Metal Alchemist, that's kind of that's that's what's at the uh, center of that entire story when it comes when it comes to Ed. It's it's fifty plus episodes, and you can't get into all of the you know instances and and examples of him being heroic without spending an hour and a half two hours talking about it but he is just a fan and I, I wouldn't want to give it away to anybody who hasn't seen it either that's just the origin he, he lost his mother then he lost his brother's body and then this is his quest to get them back and then there's all kinds of political intrigue and war and stuff on top of that but 
the strife that they go through collectively, and I, I don't know which version you watch, Colleen. I've watched both, but in Brotherhood, it is just the things that they overcome and go through. Both of the, the brothers, it's hard not to lump them in a category together, but Edward and Alphonse together, they struggle through so much, and, and, and they come out on the other side, and it's just, it's a journey with the characters, and you feel all the richer for it. Yeah, and it's it's and it's also like a, like you know a, a triumph in the tragedy or the tragedy in the triumph. It's very uh, deep um, yes. in that series, and it's it's definitely it's well well worth uh, watching. Yeah, I great pick, Ed, and one that you know maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with it, but absolutely should be. So well done, sir. Uh, and I think that set the stage for Colleen for your second pick. I love. This entire movie, I know we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about one character that I just, you know, fair warning, I might geek out a little bit. <laughs> and those of you, I made a reference to it when I opened up, um, and I said, may the seven pillars of Google be with you at all times. So this is uh, The Last Starfighter, uh, specifically the origin story of The Last Starfighter, with who is um, Alex Rogan. And if you guys have not seen this movie, you must see it. It is probably the best movie ever made. And that's just my humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bold statement. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. It's a bold film. It is. It is amazing. It's the first movie to ever have like full scenes in CG. Um, I know if you watch it now, you're like, oh, that's so hokey. But it was made in 1984, and for 1984, it was groundbreaking technology. And anyway, the movie, the plot, it's it's incredible, and the writing is fantastic. But anyway, specifically with Alex. Um, he's basically, he's just like your average teenager. He lives in a trailer park. He feels like he's going absolutely nowhere and he's just stuck. You know, he can't get out of like this humdrum existence. And he has huge dreams, just doesn't know how to realize them. Um, so to escape, you know, his like boring reality of, you know, sitting around and helping other people in the trailer park, like, you know, when, when their cable goes out or when their plumbing stops working, um, he plays uh, an arcade game called, uh, it's called Starfighter, you know, where he, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, it's like when you play, you know, like Galaga, you know, you're supposed to like shoot things and kill things and whatever. There's this moment in the movie where he, uh, you know, gets, the high score on the game and he's just thinks he's like the like you know this is the best moment of my life i got the high score on the starfighter game well that ends up being a, to a certain extent a type of the a little bit of like a catalyst because this guy shows up his name is centauri um and ends up taking alex to another planet um where he is recruited unwillingly recruited to become a starfighter um, and the Starfighters are uh, one of the few people in the galaxy with enough talent to pilot the temperamental and dangerous gun stars, which are fighter ships that are used to fight um, an invading army. It threatens, it's the Kodan um, Armada, which uh, threatens Earth and the entire galaxy. The fun part about um, this part in the story is that it has nothing to do with this. Um, he, he's like, what war are you talking about? I've never heard of this. I don't want to be involved in any of this. Take me back home. Uh, so he initially wants absolutely nothing to do with becoming a starfighter. But events happen, and eventually he doesn't have a choice. The um, Kodan and this evil guy named Zur attack 
the starfighters and they end up killing all of them and Alex just happens to survive because he's on his way back to Earth. Um, so he's thrust into this galactic war that he wants nothing to do with and ends up going out in battle against the Kodan and finds out right before he engages with this army that he is the last starfighter. There's nobody else. It's just literally him, one ship against the entire armada. Um, and, he's, and he goes, are you kidding me? I'm going to be killed. So at this point in the movie, it's still very much, he's still very much a teenager, very selfish, going, what the hell's going on? But it's during that battle that things change, and he... Uh, becomes the, a starfighter. He grows up uh, very, very quickly. And in the end, he destroys the entire Kodan armada um, and becomes like this huge, massive hero and um, decides to stay on this other planet and rebuild the, uh, the Starfighter League. Um, and it's just, it's an amazing story. And I, just, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> The idea that someone could become a hero because of a video game appeals yeah. to all of us, I think, to some <laughs> way. I mean, uh -huh. yeah, the movie is very quintessential 80s, okay? It's like any 80s, you know, kid's wet dream. You literally, you know, become, you know, part of the game. Unlike Tron, where you get sucked into the game, you find out that the game itself is like a sword in the stone that when you hit the high score, you suddenly get become literally thrust into this actual universe. The game is just a facade, you know, and it turns out that the game was a test. Uh, to see if, if Alex or whoever plays it has the has the ability and the talent to become a starfighter. So, whosoever plays this game, if he gets the high score, shall possess the power of Thor. <laughs> <laughs> it, sucked, it, it sucked to be the first guy that put a quarter in, didn't it? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to point out something that uh, I've always thought that Orson Scott Card was one of the most overrated authors. And he stole a lot of Ender's Game from The Last Starfighter. Just right. so I've, not, I've not read the book yet. There, okay, there is so much about Starfighter that if you watch it now, you're like, wow, that reminds me a lot of, you know, this movie or this sci-fi movie or this sci-fi series. And it, its impact as a film, and I could wax poetic, trust me, is is insane. Like, there's the, the, the car that Centauri uses to pick up Alex. Um, it turns into, like, a spaceship, and it has the wing, you know, doors like DeLoreans do. That actually became the inspiration for the star car in um, in Back to the Future, for example. I mean, but The Last Starfighter, it's almost a shame of cinema history that a film that was so well-written as far as plot and so well-produced as far as special effects, so groundbreaking in terms of special effects, tends to get overlooked when you look at the 80s classics like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future. It deserves a place in that group. It you know it really I really does it was when it came out um, it was it was overlooked at the time um, but since then it's become kind of like a, a cult you know has its own following I'm part of it uh, classic um, it but it really is just a great movie and for another reference the guys who uh, came up with the idea for the Last Starfighter actually used to work for Industrial Light and Magic and they worked on Return of the Jedi um, and they actually went to Lucas and said, hey, um, we can do a lot more with computer-generated effects, 
you know, then with working, you know, with uh, 3D models. Um, and Lucas at the time was interested in it, which I think is in funny because these guys left ILM and one year later, The Last Starfighter came out and had all these CGI effects that nobody had seen anywhere in the world at that point. In fact, the technology was so advanced, it was impossible for anyone else in the world to replicate it. And, and then, then barely... Yeah, then barely a decade later, Lucas embraced CGI to levels we never wanted. Giving us Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if you think about it, that movie really launched, you know, the CGI revolution because it proved what you could do with computer-generated graphics. Yeah. So everything that we have today from Avatar and, you know, and from Rogue One, you know, with the CGI, what they did with, you know, Leia and with Tarkin, really does have its origins in The Last Starfighter. And, but and, beyond yeah. that... As a movie, just as an origin story for Alex, it's just, like I said, you just have this everyday kid who has these big dreams and is struggling, uh, trying to escape, like, his humdrum life. And then when he's finally thrust into, you know, greatness, he initially doesn't want it. He wants nothing to do with it. And then it's just kind of, he's just put in a situation where it's literally do or die. And it is through, you know, that, um, uh, through, I can't even think of the word. It's in my head and it's just dying in my head, whatever. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's through that process and battle that he, um, you know, has that change and he, you know, uh, basically is able to fully embrace uh, his destiny. And it's just, it's an absolutely incredible story. And I'll do a shout out here to one of, I think, Colleen, both of our favorite books, Ready Player One. It reminds me a lot of the protagonist of Ready Player. Now, Ready Player One came much later, but the similar kind of story. Ready Player One does it in a very different way, but Ernest Cline did a really good job with that kind of an origin story. But Last Starfighter gets the nod, it did it first. Well, the difference really is in Ready Player One, which is a good read for those. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. Uh, but Ready Player One is different because the the people are playing um, in, like, uh, it's, it's a virtual reality. So it's very similar, I think, more like, to an extent, kind of like Tron versus, you know, versus um, The Last Starfighter. They know it's a second reality thing. It's not like it's a game for an, an actual thing on a planet. Right, yeah, the, the idea behind The Last Starfighter is is that, you know, you have this arcade game, and then you turn out that the arcade game is actually real. So imagine your fear if Donkey Kong walks up to you and asks you to throw a barrel. There was a movie a year or so ago called Pixels, and we don't want to talk about that very much. No, we don't. Moving on. Um, <laughs> that, that, yeah, let's, let's that just movie move had along. so much potential, it was, it was too bad. I think there's yeah. an episode down the road of which film squandered the most potential, which is a, a big nominee, uh, but... Before, the Hobbit franchise. <laughs> before we go on, uh, Matt, I know that your last pick and my last pick are both a little bit non-traditional as far as nerd picks. So I'm going to do our, a few honorable mentions right now. So I spoke to a listener uh, about this. His name is Tom, and his nominee was actually the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he said that his that was his pick because their origin story in the comics was connected to that of Daredevil. The can that blinded Daredevil was the same can of ooze that fell in the sewer and created the turtles. Uh, so he thought that it was, was really cool that it was a, a double origin story for Daredevil and the turtles. I also like Splinter's origin story because he's a rat made good. Um, so that's it, their pick. Aaron, who's been on the show before, her pick for favorite origin story is Harry Potter. Um, you know, a boy who is essentially abused and imprisoned in his house and little closet all of a sudden becomes the most important wizard on Earth. Uh, 
I definitely see that as a story. One that I want to introduce that we, we're not going to do Star Trek this week, but I think that Benjamin Sisko's origin story as being uh, forged in the fires of Wolf 359 and then becoming the emissary to the prophets is, is the best origin story in Star Trek. Uh, th- those are my honorable mentions. I also think there, there's, a, there's a bunch of honorable mentions for, the, for a topic like this, and I would love to hear all of your honorable mentions as well. Um, you know, listeners, please send those in to bnqfeedback at gmail.com or to our Twitter at bnqpodcast. Uh, but I do, we do have two more regular picks, and my, my pick, I'll go first, is non-traditional because of how old it is. Uh, you, as you listeners well know, I am a literature aficionado, and I'm going way back in this origin story, all the way back to the 19th century, uh, back to one of the definitive novels of the 19th century, The Count of Monte Cristo uh, by Alexandre Dumont. And of course, I am talking about the, Ale- the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes. First published in 1845, if you haven't read this book in school or if you hate it because you were forced to read it in school, let me give you a recap. Uh, Edmond Dantes is a quintessential Frenchman of the early 19th century or mid-19th century. He is um, foppish. He is polite but doesn't really have any cares. He is wealthy but not super wealthy. He has a fiancé named Mercedes who is... uh, quite doting and is a lovely woman but he doesn't Dante's doesn't really have that much of a presence he's the kind of guy that you will see talk to have a good time but then just forget about until he is wrongfully imprisoned in one of the worst prisons in Europe the same prison where the man in the iron mask also a Dumas work uh, wasn't uh Dante's while there encounters a priest uh, an abbe uh, who is also imprisoned and who teaches him uh, philosophy, art, culture, um, and a lot of other things besides. And the abbe becomes his parental figure. And it turns out that he has hidden a fortune near the prison, and he tells Edmund how to escape. But Edmund at this time, all of this time in prison has turned him into something else entirely. Our first P was was progression. He has progressed. He is no longer just the fop from the 19th century. He is now a soldier of providence, as he says in the book. He is vengeance made real. And and when he escapes uh, the prison, which he is able to do with uh, Abbe's help, uh, yeah, he essentially becomes V, as in V for Vendetta. He goes to find the treasure and takes on a new life as the mysterious Count of Monte Cristo, who ironically... People in Paris do not know the origin of the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, and they think that he is some sort of vampire. They think he is uh, an agent of Satan, an agent of God, a provocateur from the Tsar government in Russia, all these things, but it's really Edmond Dantes. And he sets up this plot to get revenge on everybody who has wronged him. He was the punisher before the Punisher. He was V before V. And he goes back to Paris and has parties where he executes all these people uh, and and essentially causes the ruination of everyone who ruined him until he finally finds love in an odd place with a woman that he actually freed from slavery by buying the rights to her and then freeing her. Uh, And I say woman loosely. She was a teenager, and then he started to love her when she 
became an adult. So I don't like that part. I'm ignoring that part. But I'm talking about the origin <laughs> story here. And the origin story of a man who is not memorable, being thrown into prison for something he didn't do, and becoming the most um, violent, focused agent of change. I would argue that Count of Monte Cristo established the archetype of that kind of character, and he might very well be the very first anti-hero in hmm. Western literature. So for starting everything about that sort of anti-hero movement, for being Deadpool before sarcasm was a thing, <laughs> the Count of Monte Cristo is my pick for origin story nominee. Very good choice. I think he's kind of like the Dark Knight. He really is. I mean... It's he is dark, and especially for 1845, what a dark character! And now, now don't get me wrong, I, 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 as a historian, you know, Colleen and Matt and I, we all historians, we know that people were dark and evil and sadistic since time immemorial. That's not a new thing. But to see, what but to see vengeance portrayed in the middle of the 19th century so vividly is surprising when you when you consider the fact that it, that. You know, in the 19th century, it's not quite the Victorian era yet, but literature tended to be all about emotional quandaries. You know, you, it's not even yet the time of Dostoevsky and Crime and Punishment. So to see something like this that really harkens back to Greek tragedy, but even more sadistic, it was revolutionary for its time, especially insofar as portraying Monte Cristo as a hero. Portraying Dante's as a protagonist, because I feel like if you have this character in any other work of the 19th century, he's considered the villain, because well, he's I going think, against the propriety of society. Well, I think the only reason it really works as kind of like a, a hero or anti-hero is because you are familiar, you know his story. The story doesn't start with like this asshole going around killing a bunch of people. You know, it, you see how wronged he is. And so you, you feel for him and you, you kind of want revenge with him. Now, I remember when I read the book, there was a certain point when I was like, whoa, he's getting really in deep with this revenge stuff uh, to the point where I think it just, it, it, it twists him. It turns him into, into a, a, another, you know, one of those sadistic evil bastards, the same people who did all that shit to him. Exactly. You know, and make a question like that. It's a fine line, you know, between, I guess you could say, the light and the darkness and, and how deep you want to go for, for, for revenge. Because in the end, remember, at the beginning of the book, he had his fiance, and then he, when he comes back, you know, she marries, you know, the douchebag that, you know, put him in prison. Um, and, but then through um, Dante, as he's going through, you know, and, and uh, makes that other guy, ruins the other guy's life, he also ruins the life of the woman he loved. And so it's, it's like, dude, what have you become? He lost his, um, well, his, whatever, his perspective, his... Blinders. I don't know what you want to call it, but you're right. He, uh, I'm thinking of the song "Hurt" that Johnny Cash covered. What have I become? My empire of dirt. Like he, he went way beyond what he should have done. And by the end of the novel, I think he realizes it to an extent. Uh, much like uh, Rashkinov notices it in Crime and Punishment and starts to realize that he had done something wrong. He does too. But by the time he realizes it, the damage is done. Yes. I mean, Mercedes is broken as a human being, and she suffers more than any other character in the novel, which is 
damned shame considering how long she was faithful to him and she didn't even know that he had been wronged in the first place when she married douchebag. I'm not saying <laughs> she's innocent in all this completely, but her punishment is way disproportional to the crime. Yeah, I just, it just kind of, you know, I think it's it's difficult for me knowing what he becomes and and how it how the story ends to really see him as 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 a hero, um, an anti-hero maybe. I I would probably argue that he you know, starts out as just being an every, every man that happens to be wronged, you know, by, and, and by very powerful people who are trying to manipulate him for their own ends. And then he, in the end, becomes a more villain. I can definitely see that argument. I just, I think I had to include it because it set so many uh, standards and established so many things that we still see today in countless yeah. works. I mean, V for Vendetta as a movie completely was, like, not subtle because if you remember, they actually have several scenes from the 1950s, you know, movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and there are parallels in that movie with, uh, you know, V um, being so focused on, you know, his vengeance, but then he falls in love with Evie, but, you know, um, and yet he wrongs her as well. I mean, he, he basically, you know, kidnaps her and he enslaves her and he tortures her, Um and you have those parallels with what happened in the Count of Monte Cristo, um, you know, with with um, Edmond Dante's falling in love with what's her face, that other the other the other chick. Yeah. Um, even though she was, she was enslaved and she went through hell as well, but he was so focused. Uh, Edmond Dante's was so focused on his on his uh, revenge that it's like when Evie says in the movie V that you know he um, he cared more about revenge than he did about the woman he said he loved. Yeah, so I think that there's definitely a debate to be had, and maybe we can have it down the road of what makes a hero versus an anti-hero versus a villain. Where's that line? But I think it's an interesting character to talk about nonetheless. Um, Matt, you um, told me that your second pick was unidentified gaming character, and I have been dying to hear all week who the hell this is. And I'm guessing it's not Sonic the Hedgehog, so fill us in. I think it's the dog. From Fable 2, right? It's dog meat from Fallout. No. Well, you know, we, we, we've been going through these characters who have these rich, complex backgrounds, and I'm about to throw this clean in the other direction. <laughs> <coughs> and no, Colleen, it is not the unnamed dog from Fable 2. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> he had a rough origin story. No. My pick... When I say the complete opposite direction, I mean, hold on to your hats. We're getting some whiplash here. I am talking about the player character from the Elder Scrolls series. Wait, don't they don't have an origin, do they? Exactly. And, and now, here's my logic, now that you all think I'm completely insane, because I am. I've, I've worked for... We only uh, just got to that point. <laughs> We've known you're insane for a long, long time. We've accepted that as fact. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's up there with gravity, really. Uh, I've tried to fight that one. It it doesn't end well. But (laughs) my reasoning for the player character for Elder Souls, and this can be Skyrim, Oblivion, Morrowind, Daggerfall, and yes, I have played all of them. I, I really need to... I really need to get a life, but I'm not going to. Um, ever. <coughs> it's too late for me to sell. 
But no, the, the reasoning for this is because unidentified prisoner who is leaving custody in some fashion. And Skyrim, you escape the custody of the Empire when a dragon attacks. In Oblivion, you're in a jail cell that no one's supposed to be in, so the Emperor releases you because it because of a vision he had. And in Morrowind, you're just on a ship on your way to be released because you have an Imperial pardon. <coughs> but because of that, your origin story is up to the player. So your origin story is whatever you want it to be. And a lot of play a lot of players, at least people I know, because again we don't have lives, we actually sit down and come up with these deep, complicated, sometimes absolutely convoluted origin stories for these characters. And because the story is limited only by your imagination, nothing that can be written or committed to screen can ever top that. <coughs> Because one of the one of the hallmarks of storytelling is never say something that you can imply. Because when you imply something, the the reader or the viewer or the player can generally take that to a much farther or much more complicated conclusion than just saying, "Well, you got in a bar fight in the Imperial City, and that's why you're in the prison cell, and they just put you in the wrong one." But instead, it's just like, there's not supposed to be a prisoner here. What the hell, dude? Okay, guess you're coming with us. Well, that says more about the state of the Empire than anything else. Those damn storm clothes are dicking our jabs. <laughs> what is a South Park reference for 500, Alex? <laughs> uh, by the way, another honorable mention, uh, Mysterion, as played by Kenny. But we'll get that to another show. Uh, Mysterion. But, yeah. <laughs> but Matt, that's an... That's an inspired pick. Sometimes your insanity is genius uh, because the best origin story is the one that we create. It's, it's uh, In a way, what you've just picked is everybody's character in Dungeons & Dragons as well. Yeah, uh, oh, don't even start on Dungeons & Dragons. We'll be here for weeks. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you, you've created – we can all create these origin stories that are – you know, dr- that are created by our own life experiences, and we bring that to Skyrim, to Morrowind, to you know any of the Elder Scrolls games, and those games allow for such immersion that you just take that character you've built in your head, and all of a sudden the world just is your oyster. And I actually know when I played Skyrim, there are certain missions that I have refused to take because my character wouldn't do them. My God, it's like the fable, you know, things where you, every action typically has some kind of a consequence, you know, good, evil, blah, 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 and I, and and it will shape your destiny, and that's why I love those games so much. So it's like fable, but good? Ooh, that's fighting words. You can suck it, Matt. Uh, another, <laughs> franchise, another franchise is infamous on the PlayStation systems, and those are pretty good, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good origin stories in gaming, and I. But Matt, I think you found the quintessential one—the origin of a character that you create in your head. So that's yeah. brilliant. Uh, so well, I know we're we're running it's like the premise of the never-ending story. Like all of the characters that exist in the in Fantasia all exist because they were created from somebody's imagination. And well, we are in a world of pure imagination, according to Gene Wilder, R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, but sixteen, Matt. 
I know. What a year. Uh, but it's now time to decide who is our winner of our group of eight, where the four of us will pick the the best origin story of the bunch. And, Ed, I'll start with you. We're picking one each. One each. And it can be anything that we've said, or if you want to bring out one that's a, a dark horse that hasn't been there at all, you're free to do that as well. I'm actually going to go with yours, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, because uh, it just it was the anti-hero before the anti-hero. Thank you, sir. I get a point. Ding. Uh, Colleen, who's your top origin? Um, I'm going to go with, uh, well, okay, uh, with the Silver Surfer, actually, because I, I'm not that familiar with the character mm-hmm. outside. He's a royal douchebag. So to learn <laughs> that there's more, much more to him, I'm actually excited. I want to, like, look into it. But I like... Again, going back to point and progression, you know, I really like those stories where you have that growth and that depth in a character, and it sounds like the Silver Surfer has both. Ding! Point for Matt. Uh, My pick for the best uh, origin story, I'm going to go with Alex from The Last Starfighter. Uh, (laughs) Because I, I, like you said, it's every nerd's dream that... Doing something that we would love to do anyway makes you a hero, and the fact that he learned that it's not just about the game, but it's about responsibility, and I love the fact that he progresses so much to where he decides to stay on that planet and help them out. Uh, the transition from gamer to savior, ah, see what I did there, is uh, awesome. So, Alex from The Last Starfighter. Matt, who's your pick? Well, I, I'm really torn because, honestly, every single one of the picks tonight was really great. Yeah, we've all, yeah, pat on the back to the collective us. And I'm, I don't want to be that jerk who votes for his own thing. But you will be. Well, <laughs> I'm actually going to go with something that Josh said offhand while discussing my last one. And that is the player character of Dungeons & Dragons. Because... Honestly, with the player characters of Dungeons and Dragons, that was so integral to all the role-playing games that we have now, both tabletop and video game. I, I think it was absolutely integral to, vid- to the progression of video games in general. But I also think that Dungeons and Dragons, barring you know the work of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm. was probably one of the most influential things in the fantasy genre to date. And by leaving the character to the player's imagination, I think it just makes their story so much richer because you can be any. Great pick. And honestly, I could have gone with any of the eight. There's a great there's a great argument to be had for any of the eight. I loved all your picks, Ed. I loved your picks, Matt. I loved your picks, Colleen. It's just, you know, it, what, yeah... It was you a, get a great, you great, get a car. Everyone gets a car. Yeah. Please. No. Uh, it was a great group of eight, and, but I do think there are more out there. I just thought of, for example, Rumpelstiltskin from Once Upon a Time has a really interesting origin story. So, uh, if you want to send in your favorite origin story, please send it into bnqfeedback at gmail dot com or t- uh, tweet us at bnq podcast. We'd love to do another special on this down the road, or we'll, we'll read off your feedback on a later episode. Uh, but we do have one more piece of business, and uh, I will say first, uh, thank you very much to Ed. Thank you, sir. Thank you to Colleen. You know, 
we can have another episode later called Hero or Douchebag for some of these characters that kind of like go on the line. No, it's got to be it's it's got to be rapid fire the entire time. That's Thor. fantastic. Yeah, Hero. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll do it the same episode as Thor's Hammer because that's our our favorite right now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Matt, thank you, but you have something to do first, don't you, Matt? Well, that's right, Josh. You see, here are big nerdy questions. We have to kill Jar Jar Binks. And today, well, Jar Jar heard our episode, and <coughs> he decided that he wanted to become a hero because he's been maligned so much, even to the point of being accused of being the Dark Lord of the Sith, which he is. <laughs> he is so dark he decided dark to dark. enact his own one story, picked up an issue of Spider-Man, and went out seeking a radioactive spider to bite him. Unfortunately, it was a radioactive Brazilian wandering spider. <laughs> For those of you not familiar with the Brazilian wandering spider, it is the single most venomous spider on Earth. Uh, also, the freaking huge. Huh. And does, like, don't, don't Google it. You're not sleeping that night. Uh, just for reference, everybody here, uh, there was a film back in the 90s called Arachnophobia, and uh, that is the reason that a 32-year-old Ed is very, very afraid of uh, spiders. So I'm not looking that picture up. (laughs) I'm sure that you just loved um, Shelob and and that that giant freaking spider from Harry Potter. What was he called? Uh, Aragog. Aragog. Aragog, I always called him Fluffy. That was the no, 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 Fluffy. Fluffy was a three-headed dog. Cerberus. <laughs> I know. <Yeah. coughs> well, if he was Fluffy, then the spider was leggy. That could be taken the wrong way, Josh. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I didn't even think that way. Damn it, I pun when I'm even not trying. I think it's time to end this. Thank you, Matt, for killing Jar Jar once again. Well, they uh, do. Uh, and that death had some bite to it, so well done. But, um, but for Ed, Colleen, and Matt, this is Josh... Signing off for Big Nerdy Questions. See you next time. Good day.